Father, we are in a world where we are inundated with advice, we're inundated with news, we're inundated with new releases, we're inundated with movies and music and media of all kinds. Got more books than we can ever possibly read. We're so socially connected with sound bites coming in, not just from across the street or uh, in, in, in a, across a classroom or an office space, but really across the world. We're just flooded, and God, so much of this connected and information-rich world, there's so much good in it, but it's really hard to sort through all the noise. So we're grateful. I pray that you would make us very grateful that you chose to speak. And when you speak, it's always right, it's always good. Even when it challenges us or confronts us, it's good. When it encourages us, it's obviously good. It can give us hope, it can grow us. God, we thank you that today as we get to hear your word, we get to hear it not, not merely as an ink on a page, but what it is, your living and active word. We ask that through the work of the Spirit, you might make it come alive to us. That it would come in, 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 it would come in power, it would come in authority, it would come with help. And of all the things that your word does, God, what we need more than anything else is that it would direct us to King Jesus. So I ask that through the work of the Spirit that you would lift Jesus up high, that his, all that he has accomplished, all that he has done, all that he is and all that he promises to do, that we would leave this place more impressed with and more convinced of. You'd make Christ loud throughout this coming week until we get to gather back again and remind ourselves of how good Jesus is. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, if you're able, would you stand for the reading of God's word with me? I try to remind us every now and then why we stand. Partly it's just to differentiate what we're about to experience. That is, the king speaks to us. We want to stand as a recognition of his authority. Um, and then we'll sit during the sermon. And maybe today we could try something different. At the end of reading, some of you, depending on your church backgrounds, have done this before. But after I'm done reading the text, I'm going to say, um, this is the word of the Lord. And then collectively, we can all respond with, thanks be to God. This is God's holy and helpful word. Start at Matthew chapter 13, verse 24. Jesus is speaking here. He put another parable before them, saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. And then we're going to go down to verse 36. Then he left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples came to him saying, explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. 
the Son of Man will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. This is the word of the Lord. Feel free to grab a seat. It's always helpful when Christ gives the explanation of the parable that he just shared. Parables um, sometimes can be very simple stories, but sometimes understanding what they're talking about can be tricky. And there's very few times that Jesus actually says, this is what the parable is about. This is one of the few times that Jesus does that. And what he's saying is in this parable, he's saying, this is why the world is the way it is. This is why there is beauty and brokenness. This is why there is good and evil. This is why there is triumphant things and hard things. This is why people flourish and why people languish. This is why there's feasting and famine. This is where there is right and wrong. This is why there is light and dark. He's saying this is just how the world is, that there is both good and bad mingled together simultaneously. There's sons and daughters of the kingdom and their sons and daughters of the evil one. We could simply put it like this. This world is a patchwork of both righteousness and unrighteousness. It's a patchwork of good advice and terrible advice. It's a patchwork of that which is helpful and that which is harmful. An example of this sort of patchwork we can see in the area of politics. Now, I know the rhetoric around politics is that Democrats are 100% right 100% of the time. Amen? No, don't, don't. We don't want to pick that fight right now. Republicans are 100% right 100% of the time, and either side of the aisle says, no, 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 no. They're the sons of the evil one on that side. They're the weeds that have been sown in. But most people that I know are a little bit more nuanced. They're able to look at the political landscape and say, every now and then, a Republican gets it right. Amen? No? Okay. Every now and then, a Democrat gets it right. I think we can all agree on this. Most of the time, they both get it wrong. Amen? I'm, at least the way they present it. There's, there's, there's parts that align with the kingdom of God all over the place because this world is a patchwork. It's a patchwork, and there's a reason for it. Because there's been a sabotage. See, this parable talks about the, the Son of Man. Jesus comes and he sows good seed in a field. The field is the world and the seed are the sons and daughters of the kingdom. That there's righteousness and, and right uh, uh, laws and commands and ways of thinking. It's, he's saying there's a, there's a worldview that accords with the reality that God created. But then an enemy came and he sowed weeds into the field. It's an alternate worldview. It's an alternate way of understanding the way the world is, and they're mingled together. The text makes it very clear who's done this. In verse 25, it says an enemy. In verse 28, it says an enemy has done this. Later on, it says this enemy is the devil. I get it. It's 21st century people, sophisticated and scientific that sounds so rudimentary. It sounds laughable that there's a true enemy, but Jesus in no unmistakable terms says there is. There's an enemy to the kingdom and there's the, an enemy to his people. One of my um, 
all-time favorite movies is the movie The Usual Suspects. Incredible movie, very clever, very clever ending. Um, but in the movie, they, there's a line that they use, and I can't remember the person that's actually drawn from a guy back in, I think, the 50s, but, but it says something like this. The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world that he doesn't exist. That we're just unaware. That when you woke up this morning, the, probably the first thought that didn't come to mind is there's somebody working against me if I'm working for the king. But Jesus says there is. And he's come and he's sabotaged. He's sown weeds into this field. If you're a C.S. Lewis fan, you might have picked up where I got the, the title of the sermon today, Screwtape Lingers. It comes from C.S. Lewis in a book that he wrote called The Screwtape Letters. And The Screwtape Letters is a compilation of 31 letters written from a senior devil named Screwtape to his apprentice named Wormwood. And these 31 letters lay out to Wormwood, who's been assigned a human being, a, a Christian, who's called his patient, Here's the ways to tempt, to discourage, to derail, to harm, to try to draw the affections of this Christ follower away from God because he's evil and towards our father, the devil. So these 31 chapters, it's, a, um, it's entertaining reading for sure. It's insightful. It's also unnerving to see all the various ways that the enemy tries to derail you. When he tempts, he manipulates to turn us away from God. I love how J.I. Packer commenting on Lewis's work, he says this, he says, this world is enemy-occupied territory where Scrutapian ingenuity is constantly being employed to block and dissolve historic Christianity as a formative force in people's lives to turn everybody's cultural environment into a corrupting influence, to fill human minds with anti-Christian ideas and attitudes, and to lead people away from reason in the old moral sense that is thoughtful, responsible, prudent living. Satan battles God by systematically corrupting and destroying humans. Our own story is of universal personal temptation, and the downward slide to hell is thus one facet of a larger conflict. Happy Sunday. Happy Sunday. Welcome to the battle. Um, but it is. So Jesus is saying, here's how the world really is. Give you an example of this sort of conflict of ideologies, this conflict of worldviews, this conflict of what is good and right for our societies, what tends towards flourishing or not. Some of you are likely aware of a conflict that's happening down in Arizona in a particular school district in a school board. Um, one of the school board members, uh, Tamilia Valenzuela, she uh, brought up an initiative to ban a certain type of teacher from the school district. The school that she wanted to ban from had a contract with them, so it's very common for universities to have relationships with local schools to be able to send their teachers and training to go and be student teachers as part of their degree program. And th this board member was very uncomfortable with the students that were coming because of the school. The school was Arizona State Christian University, and uh, Tamilia Valenzuela said this. She says, my concern when I go to Arizona Christian University's website and I read there, and then in quotes here, they're committed to Jesus Christ, accomplishing his will and advancing an advancement on earth as in heaven. And then she goes on and says this, at some point we need to get real with ourselves and take a look at who we're making legal contracts with and that message that this is sending to our community because that makes me feel like I could not be safe in this school district. 
She's saying, I cannot be safe if the people that are teaching here say and go to a Christian school. Now, there's controversies like this all the time, and I bring this up not just because of this controversy, but here's the reality. The school board voted in favor of it, and they ended the relationship with that school. There's no record of any wrongdoing. There's no record that a student's done anything other than try to love their students and teach their area and help these kids flourish. And whatever lines you draw, whatever conclusions you draw, I just want you to hear, there is a conflict. Simply being a Christian, according to that school district at this time, is an exclusionary offense. Now, one of the slights, charges that are levied against Christians is that they're always proselytizing. Now, proselytizing is to convert or attempt to convert someone from one religion or belief to another. And in some ways, I hope that's true. If you are a Christian, I hope respectfully in the right context that you hope to help people meet Jesus because he is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except. I hope you, I really hope you believe that. I hope I believe that, and I hope I do that, not to the extent that I should. But are Christians the only ones that proselytize? No way. Everyone does, all the time, everywhere. Everyone's making disciples all the time. We're always trying to sway people to that thing that we think is right, to that thing that we think expresses ultimate reality. We're all doing it all the time. We're all doing it all the time. Give you examples. Uh, if you've ever put a political yard sign in your front yard, you are proselytizing. You might regret some of those signs you've put over the years, but you're, probably, you're saying, I, this is the candidate, this is the one that, can, that, that, that will bring about flourishing for our community. Whether it's a proposition, whether it's a bond levy, whatever it is, you put the sign up, you put the bumper sticker, you go campaign. What do you think campaigning is? We're, we're proselytizing. We're trying to make disciples. Social media. It's the loudest preacher in the world. It's got algorithms strategically built to try to manipulate you to think and believe certain things and then monetize you for it. You're being discipled all the time by YouTube and TikTok and Instagram, Reddit. Rebecca McLaughlin wrote a book a couple years ago called The Secular Creed, and she said this is another form of proselytizing. I'm not making comments on what's right or wrong. I just want you to hear that there's a lot of messaging happening, vying for your allegiance. Her book, The Secular Creed, she, she built it from the, the kind of new orthodoxy and the signs that say, like, in this house, or the signs that say, like, in this house, we believe. That's a creedal statement. That's a, dog, that's a dogma statement. And the implication is, is if you do not believe that, then you are now a heretic. You don't believe in the cultural orthodoxy. Let me give you, is this an innocent or not so innocent question? And I realize I'm touching on, I'm just, I'm not telling you what I believe. I'm trying to just lay out the dissonance and the different messaging that we are swimming in. Is this an innocent or not so innocent question? What's your preferred gender pronoun? When LinkedIn put that, or maybe your HR department put that as part of your email signature, or someone asked you that, was that an attempt to be respectful? Was that built upon an ideology that's tending towards flourishing and life? Is there something else behind it? Do we even pause and consider? 
The theme song, if you're going to pick a theme song for our current age, it might be the phrase expressive individualism. I got to be true to myself. You talk about being discipled. I mean, we are built around like, man, my truth, whatever I feel, I need to find my truth, my meaning, and, and I don't need anything other than a mirror to discover it. Is that good? Is that right? Is that accord with how God designed the world? Is that wheat or, or weeds? Again, I'm not trying to argue for or against anything, a political party, a candidate, how you should vote. I'm not doing that. I'm just trying to show that every single moment of our lives, every single moment, you are being discipled. Every single one, all the time, everywhere, all day long. Media, money, power, sports, school, work, friends, social media, all of it is telling you, here's how to live, here's what to believe. All the time. The end of the text tells us what to do with this parable. Um, it ends with a command. It says, let those who have ears, let them, let them hear. What Jesus is saying is, is be alert, be aware, wake up, see the world as it really is. It's not just a neutral place. There's both good and there's bad. There's both right and there's wrong. And they don't always agree with one another. The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. Um, Ken Ami takes that line and modifies it a little bit. He says this, the second greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world that he's actually the good guy. Where I get that is the word for wheat in this parable, um, it's uh, the word zizania. It was talking about a very specific type of weed. Um, so in what that weed was, or maybe you've heard like the wheat and the tares. So the tare is, is what it actually is, is a counterfeit, a degenerate version of wheat. It actually poses as wheat. It looks like wheat. That's how it begins. When this weed goes into the ground, when it first begins to grow, it looks exactly the same as that which is going to produce life and produce health that people might actually eat and flourish. So it looks the same, but then when it actually matures and gets a little bit bigger and there's the, the, the weed actually begins to have a kernel on it, what happens with this weed is it actually just has this black poisonous seed. Farmers at this time hated it because it would just infiltrate their fields and you didn't know early enough. See, the reason you can't just go and, you know, in this story, it's like, hey, should we go and separate? Should we pull the weeds out? It's like you can't because at that point, once it's grown up and finally revealed itself, its root system has integrated with the root of the wheat. They've all mashed together. So you just got to wait until you harvest it and then you can separate it. See, Jesus is pulling back the curtain on reality and he's saying, look at the world. It is a patchwork of good and evil, of righteous and unrighteousness. This, there is real wheat and there is counterfeit. Can you tell the difference? And one thing that makes this really hard, and I think why the, the guy, Jesus is just so clever, his use of this illustration is stunning, that it looks so similar. So it's like good and like it looks sort of good. Good and right, and maybe this is also right. See, it's so close to the real thing, but at the end of the day, it's got a poisonous seed can you tell the difference? I don't remember um, where I first heard this years and years ago, but supposedly the way like you train federal agents or bank tellers how to tell what counterfeit money is, is not by having them study counterfeit currency, because there's so many versions of it. Actually, what you do is they said the best way to figure out the counterfeit is to study the real thing. 
Because the more time you handle and, and, and are exposed to the real thing, when the counterfeit comes along, you'll automatically know it. Now, I didn't, I'd heard that story forever. I've heard that illustration forever. And so I decided before I wanted to share it that I thought I would do a little investigation to see if it was right. And thankfully, I found a blogger named Tim Challies who also was suspicious and wasn't sure if it was real. And so he did some investigation. He did all the heavy lifting on this. He lives up in Canada. And so he contacted the, whatever Canadian equivalency that he needed to talk to up there. And he went through months and months and months of red tape to try to actually get in to talk to somebody who could verify this claim is the best way to detect the counterfeit to study the real thing. And so eventually he was able to, to have a meeting with this federal agent and they take him to this building and it's like totally dark. You know, there's no windows anywhere. It sounds like, like a men in black sort of thing, you know, going subterranean. He's down this like little room and there's bars on this door and they finally buzz him in and they lead him into a room and he's in a room with like one light, metal chair, table, no windows everywhere. I imagine they were trying to figure out if he was trying to be a counterfeiter. That's, that's what I'm thinking. They were investigating him, but, but it just ended up being they just have a bunch of security procedures and protocols. So anyway, so he ends up in this room and the agent there verifies that this is indeed what they do to train people to detect counterfeit currency. We train them to know the real thing really well. But then she went on, and this is interesting. I found this really helpful. She says, what we do is we teach them to touch it, to feel like, to tilt it, to look at it at a slant, to, to hold it up to the, to, to the light, to look through it, and then to take it and to look at it, to really examine it. You touch it because currency is made with a certain type of paper that feels almost like cotton. And so one of the things people say is that when you, when you get used to touching real currency and then you feel counterfeit money, that oftentimes it kind of feels waxy. Like you can just tell. You don't have to look at it. You can just tell. And then she said, you want to tilt it because the way our currency works is we have this holographic little band that goes down into the currency. And when you hold it at an angle, what happens is that little band becomes like a rainbow. Really hard to reproduce. And then you want to take the currency, you hold it up, and what you begin to see is some watermarks that are embedded into the actual bill that you don't see when it's flat, but when you hold up the light, it's unmistakable. Again, very, very hard to recreate. And then what you do is you look at it. You, you look at it because the precision of the detail of which they're printing is really, really difficult to replicate, down to these really nuanced areas and spots. And so anyway, so Tim Chalice, he goes through this training, and then the agent actually says, okay, now you're ready and hands him a stack of bills and says, some of these are real, some of these are fake. See if he can tell the difference. And his comment, I think, was very instructive. He says, I was amazed at how easily I could tell the counterfeit. Touch it, look at it as slant, stare at it. Our world is a patchwork of competing visions of human flourishing, competing visions of ultimate reality. The question is, can you detect the counterfeit? That's why this book is so valuable. It's why the word of God matters so much. So you could spend your life reading about all the ideologies, all the new fads, all the new ideas, all the new, but there's so many. This book, the more you know it, the more you, you, you touch it and, and you hold it and you look at it, you examine it, you, you see the world through it, you, you stare at it, you see all of its, all of its, 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 its breadth and, and its, its width. When false claims come along, you just kind of know them. It's why we want you to have your people, why we really want you to be in gospel communities and discipleship groups that you might be able with other people to detect what's false and fake, what's counterfeit. 
It's why we care so much about Sundays and the, and the preaching of God's word is we want to know the word of God. We want to know it so deeply when something of error, because the, 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 the zania, the, the weed, it's so close, it's so close. It's so close. But ultimately, it's poison. Why does it matter so much? Because fake wheat, it won't feed anyone. Because the counterfeit won't heal anyone. A counterfeit kingdom, it's only going to crush you. I mean, think of Jesus' words in John 10.10. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. And he's just seeding things everywhere. Jesus says, I've come that they may have life and to have it to the full. So Jesus is saying, this is what the world is like. It's full of so many good things, so many competing, so many hard things. So many what do you do? How, how, do you, how do you navigate it? It's a patchwork. And then he says this, this is where the world's going. So he says, this is the present lens. And he says, let me give you a future lens. This is where it's going. He's saying, there's going to be a reckoning. There's going to be a day where truth will come out, where things will be judged, where right and wrong will be revealed. Um, I've been pretty harsh on social media recently, but it's not all bad for sure. Um, the internet is full of wonderful things like cat memes. Um, so <laughs> praise God for cat memes. Um, but it's, there are a number of things that actually are helpful. And, and I, no doubt everything has a shadow side. So there's, I'm sure, negative things that come from any sort of hashtag viral movement on the internet. But one of the things I think that has been very helpful over the last few years is the Me Too movement. Because what it did is it disarmed and dethroned those who had positions of power that used their power to abuse other people. It gave voice to people that had been silenced, and it called to task those that needed to be called to task. Again, I know there's a shadow side. I know there is. But it legitimately dealt with abuses that needed to be dealt with, and obviously there are so many that still need to be dealt with. Here's why I bring this up. That is a form of reckoning. Saying this thing you thought you could get away with, you will not get away with. One day you will be held to account. And that's what this text is saying. There will be a reckoning. Verses 38 and following. Talk about this. The field is the world and the good seed is the son of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is at the end of the age and the reapers are the angels. Got it all? Um, just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels and they will gather out of this kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's saying justice will finally happen. Now we love justice as a culture. We talk about it all the time. God is saying this is justice saying all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, all the things that mess everything up will finally and fully be removed. Um, last week, I uh, talked about a dear member in the church, Jim Woods, who's in, who was in Guatemala. He was down there on a medical mission trip and got to do a house call with a lovely woman who has been blind for a long time because she has glaucoma. And wonderfully, because she was found and her condition is very, very treatable, I think he said it's like a 20-minute surgery and she will be able to see again. I mean, that is incredible. And we talked about, last week we did the parable of the mustard seed that it shows up in these really hidden ways, but one day the kingdom of God will fill the whole earth. And that was an example of that, this little tiny 
tiny thing, this one, sh- this one signal that the kingdom of God is coming, someone gets healed. Well, this week, Jim is actually, he just uh, landed in Ukraine. So he's over in Ukraine right now. And he's over there because he's a medical doctor and he has a lot of experience in combat, uh, in combat surgery and, and, and medical care. And so he's over there with a number of other doctors doing field training, basically to say, this is how you try to save people who just got wounded. He, um, I was looking at the itinerary and he was the lecturer. He was talking about, here's how you do an amputation when you're in the field. And I was thinking about that. Here's how you save someone's life because there's a war happening. And as we began to interact back and forth and and, and praying back and forth, verse 41 here became really good news. The bullies will be dealt with. The invaders will be conquered. Those that break out against humanity will be held to account. I don't say that flippantly. I say that with honesty. All the causes of all the aches and all the pains and all the frustrations and all the animosity and all the divisions one day God will deal with. That there won't be war anymore. It's saying evil won't win. That's the reckoning. Evil won't win. The weeds won't finally take over. One day all the things that we long for All the reconciliation, all the unraveling of whatever systematic evils exist within our culture, one day there will be a reckoning. It will all come out and God will deal with it. You know, we could say like this, screw tape still lingers, but he's not going to win. Screw tape still lingers, but not forever. A reckoning will come. This parable shows that. It's saying it's going to come. Hasn't happened yet, but it's guaranteed. Um... The deeper we get that truth in us, this idea that like in this present moment, as we look at all the things that are happening that that cause so much anxiousness and so much fear and so much worry, and I I understand that, I I do, I'm part of this world, but, but we lose sight of the truth of what Christ is saying is that yes, whatever you see the way things are, one day, this is what God is going to do. He's gonna set it all right. Lord Byron uh, this 56 years ago, he ran the BBC, uh, the British Broadcasting Company, over in England, and he was at a, a meeting with a number of senior executives. And in this meeting, one of the younger executives spoke up, and they were talking about the upcoming programming. What kind of shows are they going to do? What sort of stuff are they going to invest in? And the young executive said something like this, look, England is no longer a Christian nation. Nobody wants to watch religious programmings about Jesus, um, I think we should stop all of that programming. I think that it, we, we got to get rid of all of it because the church is irrelevant. Lord Byron, is a Christian man, he, uh, he pounds the table. Probably only do this like 60 years ago. Now, now you would for sure be canceled. But he pounds the table and he, and he stands up. He's like 6'5", and he points his finger at this like, you know, 30-year-old exec and he says, young man, sit down. And, and he just stands there. It's just standing up. You know, this guy's probably trembling. And he says, the church will stand at the grave of the BBC. And then he just sits down. And it's this like mic drop moment where it's like the, the, God's going to win. The church is not irrelevant. Christ is not marginalized, that he is the true king that one day is coming back and his kingdom will win. This is the world. It's a patchwork. There is a reckoning coming. But I'm going to end with this. There's some really good news. Because as much as there's a reckoning, there's also a redeemer who can redeem the whole world.
including anyone in this room. In fact, his redemption is so strong, he can take sons of the evil one and make them sons of the kingdom. He's such a good redeemer, he can take weed and make it weed. He can transform it. He can transfer it. Let me give you a text, Ephesians 2, 1 through 5. We've read this a number of times over the last few weeks, so I've just kind of camped out here. This is the hope for anyone in this room who would believe. And you who were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. I just want you to hear the parallels with this parable. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. See, those three verses, it's saying you were planted by the evil. Like, you, you've been owned by the wrong king. You've been walking the wrong path. You've believed in the, the wrong agendas. You thought it was healthy, but when it grows up, you find out it's just poison. And then God interrupts that. God, by his grace, he interrupts that condition with these next two words, probably the, the most beautiful pairing of words in this one. He says, but God. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And what I love about this text is you map it over this parable. Think about it like this. A seed can't plant itself. It's got no agency. It can't do anything. See, what it needs is somebody else to come and to transfer it from one place to another. It needs to be, it needs to be sown into the ground. It needs someone to act upon it for it to actually come alive. That is the story of the gospel. That is the story of God's grace who took you and I and anyone here who believes in the work of Christ, who were sons and daughters of disobedience, who were dead in our sins, dead to God, uh, deserving of his wrath, deserving of this reckoning. And yet Christ came and was judged in the place of all that would trust him. See, that's what Jesus did at the cross. That's the story of what's known as the gospel, that God himself came in the work of Christ and he was righteous and he obeyed. He never followed the wrong leading. He never followed the wrong thinking. He never did a single thing that broke the law, but then he went to a cross where he actually took the consequence of anyone that would trust him, that he actually became the lawbreaker on the cross. That there on the cross, he he. he it was the reckoning in which all of us deserve. And yet Jesus took, and then he went to a tomb, and three days later he rose again. And I love this, this victory of this resurrection, this new life that came that says the weeds won't win, Satan won't win, darkness won't win, death won't win, the kingdom of God will win. And anyone can get in on it. I love our baptism shirts. Um, in our, in our church. So, so we give uh, free t-shirts if you get baptized. Uh, so get baptized. <laughs> Second time, third time. No, don't do that. Don't do that. But you get a free shirt. And one of the reasons we do it, I love the, what it says on the shirt. It just says redeemed. It just says redeemed. What I love about that is it's a declaration of you didn't do it. Someone else did it for you. See, that's partly maybe the the nastiest weed that exists in our world is that if you do enough, you can finally earn it. If you work hard enough, then maybe you can be right with God. 
If you perform enough, then maybe he'll accept you. If you labor and labor and labor by the, by the sweat of your brow and, and the grit of your determination, you can finally make this world right. It's not what the gospel says. It says we can't, but there's one who has. Turn to him and be healed. Oh, screw tape lingers. We are in a mixed world full of so much that is good and right and beautiful and hard and tricky and weird. Screw tape lingers, but not forever. The true kingdom will come. And when it does, it will shine out the brighter. The king is coming to set it all right for good forever and for any, for any who will come. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what a, just Jesus' insightfulness. I just want to pray as this text ends, would you grant us the ears to hear it? Not with cleverness, not with, um, there's no cleverness that's going to win anyone in the kingdom. There's no guilt that will do it. There's no, there's no fire and brimstone. There's, there's the, what truly draws us in is your gracious intervention. And so would you graciously intervene? For some in this room, maybe for the first time, that you would make the things of your word become real to them. And that you would do as this text says, you would transfer them from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of your beloved son. For those in this room that have come to faith, would, would it create a, an amazed humility? But God, when I was running, but God, when I was rebelling, but God, even as I still break his law, but God, being rich in mercy, he gave his perfect son that we might be his sons and daughters. Fill us with your truth, Holy Spirit. Reveal it and make it sing to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.